0: Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, we will be in Psalm 73. Um, just to kind of give you a little bit of what we will be doing over the next few, over, the, over this next month, and then leading on into the coming months and I perhaps should say years. Um, this month we're going to walk through a couple of Psalms. Blake and I are going to preach through just a couple of selected ones. Um, after we finish that, we will begin working through the book of Jude. And then after we finish the book of Jude, we will be diving in to the book of Exodus and we will spend our time working through that wonderful book. Um, together. So um, with that said, to kind of introduce to you our current text, uh, Psalm 73 is a rather unique song, and I will say that it is a beloved psalm of mine. The beauty of being able to pick anything you want is you pick your favorites. Um, And Psalm 73 is one that has been unique in my own life, and particularly um, because of inward concerns around my own frailty, um, you know, I think every, every Christian has things that beset them, things that often wage war against them. And, and from time to time, I, I think about the frailty of my, of my flesh and my heart, and I'm often reminded in the midst of that that I have an appropriate thing to cling to. But in the midst of being concerned about the frailty of the flesh and the frailty of the heart, oftentimes the very first response is not to grab or gravitate toward the truths that I need to hold on to. Instead, it's often to flounder about. And in Psalm 73, what we have is a really interesting layout of how we deal with looking at the world around us and how we deal with suffering or strife or anguish or even questioning God's justice, how it is that we deal with these particular things in our lives so that we do not abandon the truth in the midst of our questioning. And so what I want to lay out to you today is somewhat of a method. And it's a method that I'm convinced is laid out by Psalm 73. And it's a method that I hope that you will employ in your daily life as you wage war against the flesh, as you remember the frailty of your heart, as you remember the frailty of your human frame. And that, that, that method that I'd like to lay out to you is clinging to and binding yourself to truth. Psalm 73 starts in a really unique way. It's somewhat abrupt in its introduction. It begins stating something that the psalmist, in this particular case, Asaph, believes as truth. But let me give you the occasion before we dive into the text. The reason that Asaph is writing this is because he's looking around at the world around him and he's trying to figure out why is it that the wicked prosper? Why is it that as he's looking at the world, he sees wicked men who've rebelled against God, who are God-haters, prospering and seemingly increasing in their prosperity. And at the very same time, he looks at the people of God and he's looking at them, those who fear God, those who are clean in heart, those who are truly Israel. And he's wondering why they are beset with all types of sufferings. He's wondering why they are not prosperous. He's wondering why, as he's looking at these things, is, the, is, is, is God unjust in the way that he's dealing with the wicked and simultaneously the way that he's dealing with the righteous? Now, this is a question that I think really does go beyond just Psalm 73, but is one that we continually look at even in our day. But I want to present to you a basic presupposition as we enter into Psalm 73, that the reason that Psalm 73 is written is because Asaph is not so much struggling with the world around him as he is struggling with his inner man. He is dealing with covetousness of self, covetousness of the things of the world, and at the very same time embracing lies that the world is laying out before him. And as he's doing so, the question must be asked, how is it that he can find any firm footing in the midst of his covetousness or in the midst of his embracing of lies? And Psalm 73 lays this out for us, I think, rather precisely and helpfully, and even lands at a very high crescendo, perhaps over and against his original confession in verse 1. Now finally, in the midst of laying out this concept to you, it is easy for us to read Psalm 73 and believe that this took place over perhaps months or years. But in reality, the Christian is often assailed by various sinful inward desires that must be essentially suppressed, must be waged war against, must be taken captive so that we can believe what is right and true. And that often takes place not in minutes, but in seconds. Seconds. And not only in seconds, perhaps it is in hours, or perhaps it is in weeks, or perhaps it is in months, but the hope is, saints, that you are always bound to what is true, that you always have firm footing so that when covetousness assails, so that when lies begin to wage war in your mind, you have a firm footing and a place to go back to. And so with all that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 73, starting in verse 1, we'll read the entirety of the psalm. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places and make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray together. Father, what a wonderful confession. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Father, will you fill these words with meaning? Lord, they are already so full, but may we not miss the context in which they are uttered. Lord, in the midst of frustration, in the midst of our own sin, Lord, that confession flows forth as a confession of repentance and even a reclamation of that which is true. And Father, I know that the saints in the midst of this congregation are not alone in their struggles against sin. They're not alone in their frustrations in the world. But Lord, may they also be united in the confession that only in heaven, the only glory and splendor of heaven, the only thing that is to be desired here below is Christ and Christ himself. And so, Father, would you help us, help us to loosen our grasp on the world and savor Christ all the more. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So before we dive in particularly this text, I gave you a a phrase. And this phrase is one that's become near and dear to my own heart. And it's the phrase of a binding truth. In Psalm 73 verse 1, this is the, the citation essentially of this binding truth. Before he dives into essentially his prayers unto the Lord, he meditates upon something that is, he is certain is an absolute, he is certain is true. And that simply reads, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, if I could maybe define a binding truth for you, a binding truth is an anchor point, a holy certainty that God has spoken and spoken definitively. Ultimately, a binding truth is an anchor point of the soul that is uncompromised and uncontested. So for instance, in the Christian life, we have binding truths such as God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Saints, we use this binding truth often. When we deal with suffering and trial and tribulation, we often go back to this particular promise of God and say, even in the midst of all of the difficulty that I am currently dealing with, I know that God is working together for good. I know that he's sanctifying. I know that he's doing a great work, even though I may be blind to it. The binding truth is, the anchor point of the soul is, God is working together for good. He is active. He is not passive in this. He is laboring in the midst of my trial and tribulation. Or perhaps it is another binding point of the, of, the, of the soul for the Christian is that it is Christ Jesus who was crucified. More than that, he was raised. When you begin to question, will I actually be accepted into heaven? The binding truth is not that you are acceptable. It's that Christ's work was sufficient. And you go on preaching that to self. You say, he has died, he is raised, he ever lives to mediate for me. This is a binding truth for the Christian. It binds us, it anchors us in truth. To give you two really clear points of this in the scriptures, Job 19, 25 through 27. I imagine all of you are familiar with Job. Job went underwent an incredible trial where all was snatched from him, from him. And then he makes this refrain. In the midst of this, the question has to be, how is it that Job remained somewhat resolute? And I am not convinced that Job was perfect in his resoluteness, as, as I think scripture clearly cites, he was self-righteous. But nonetheless, there was a confession here. Job 19, 25 through 27, in the midst of suffering, this is what he was certain of. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. How is it that Job endures all the tribulation that comes his way? There is a binding truth in the soul of Job. He knows, he knows his Redeemer lives. And not only that his Redeemer lives, but that he shall see him. This is the anchor point of Job's soul. And then further, in Lamentation in the midst of absolute destruction all around, there is this central verse that simply says this, Lamentation 321. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for His compassion never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The anchor point of the writer of Lamentations' soul, as he's looking at the destruction around him, people starving to death, his city in ruin, he says that the Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. He is certain of this. This is the firm footing of his soul. And what The psalmist in Psalm 73, in this case Asaph is doing, is he is laying that groundwork as he begins to work through the difficulty that he is looking at. So let's consider for a moment the binding truth of Asaph as he begins this psalm. The binding truth is this, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And oftentimes we hear phrases like this and we believe that these are simple, that there's not much depth to them. But as a matter of fact, I am convinced that Asaph would have had a very full cup in his understanding of the goodness of God to Israel. So let's build that out for a moment. How is God good to Israel? Because this is essentially what Asaph is confessing. God is good to Israel in his covenant making with Israel. We must never forget that Abraham was the one called. Out. Abraham did not seek after God. God sought out Abraham and essentially established a covenant with him, a covenant that promised certain things would come to fruition. This is a demonstration of God's goodness to Israel. Further, God is good to Israel in his delivering of Israel from bondage to slavery in Egypt. What a wonderful demonstration of God's goodness. Exodus 6 reminds us that God remembers these things. And as he remembers his covenant with Abraham, he goes, he hears the cry of those who are afflicted in Egypt, and he goes and he seeks them out and he ultimately delivers them. What a wonderful demonstration of God's goodness to Israel. And it is not as though Israel was perfect in the midst of their slavery. It is not as though there was a perfect righteousness in them as they were held captive. No, we even see them grumble against God's servant Moses as he goes forth confessing that God will deliver them. And yet we see the goodness of God still remain upon Israel in the midst of this. He delivers them. He brings them out of slavery. God is good to Israel and is giving them the law and the tabernacle. One of the things you will discover as we walk through the book of Exodus is that more Real estate is given to the, giving, to the giving of the tabernacle than there is to the giving of the law. The reality is that God delights to dwell with his people. And in the beauty of this moment, we see that God's goodness to Israel is that he placed his lampstand essentially in their midst. He said, draw near, come to the tabernacle, see the pillar of cloud and fire, see where the glory of God rests. And this is where God chose to rest his glory here on the earth. And so he gave them the law and the tabernacle, a wonderful expression of his goodness and his kindness toward them. God is good to them in his sending the prophets and giving them the oracles of God. Romans 3 makes this abundantly clear. What benefit is it that we be Israel? Essentially is that the oracles of God have been entrusted to you. The mystery was given to them so that they might look into it and examine it. And not only that, Asaph would have been looking at David and being reminded of the Davidic king, the promises that had been made in that particular area, that there would be a perfect king that would come. God's demonstration of his goodness to Israel is vast and even In light of the full testament of Scripture, we must also say that God is good to them in his using of Israel to bring Christ to the world. A wonderful display of God's goodness and God's kindness is even in the midst of the infidelity of Israel, he continues to execute the promise that was given to Abraham that there would be a promised offspring that would come. God's goodness essentially knows no bound. Asaph knows this. And hear me, church, before we go any further, you are not excluded from this goodness. It's so easy for us to disconnect ourselves, but saints, the whole premise as we have walked through over the past few years of the book of Romans is to tell you that you too are a part of Israel. Is it not quite clear that we are a child of Abraham by faith? Romans 4 makes this abundantly clear. Romans 2 tells us that it is not one who is circumcised outwardly, but one who is circumcised inwardly that truly belongs to Israel. And the mark of the new covenant is the circumcision of heart, is the new birth being brought into that faith family, being born again as it were. Each of these promises that we are looking back to, each of these demonstrations of God's goodness is a demonstration not only for the nation of Israel in the old covenant, but a demonstration of God's goodness to the new covenant Israel. It's clear that we belong to these things. There's a demonstration of God's goodness and God's kindness to Asaph, to Israel, and to his church. But then we go further, and it's not as though Asaph is just considering the good to Israel, but ultimately the good to those who are pure in heart. Now, how do we know that God is good to those who are pure in heart? Or what is the expression of God's goodness to those who are pure of heart? May I begin with this premise. Psalm 51.10 tells us, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The first step of God's goodness, the first demonstration of God's goodness to those who are pure in heart, is that He makes them pure in heart. Because every single individual is not born with a purity of heart. As a matter of fact, every single individual is born with a heart that is at enmity with God, is a God-hater who desires nothing but self-glory, who seeks after vain and empty things. It takes the God of the Scripture to birth life in one who is not pure of heart, but of heart of heart. It takes the wonderful mallet of God's Word and God's Spirit to shatter that hard heart and replace it with a malleable one, malleable to His particular will. It's a wonderful demonstration of God's goodness. That he would take a fallen man, one who is wicked, one who is far from him, one who is a God-hater, and make him pure of heart. But how else does God express his goodness to those who are pure of heart? Second, he draws near to those who are of a clean heart. Matthew 5 8, we read this recently. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I can think of no greater demonstration of God's goodness than in the fact that he would allow us to behold him. Allow us to see him, to delight in him, to not see him with veiled eyes, but to see him with unveiled eyes, to behold him in truth, to behold him in his full array of glory, namely, and first and foremost, in the face of Jesus Christ. We behold him. This is a demonstration of his affection to those who are clean of heart. Again, that which he made them clean of heart, he gives great blessings to them. Third, he guides them with his word and his spirit. Psalm 73, 24. With your counsel, you will guide me. What a beautiful truth it is that those who are clean in heart by the work of Christ truly do have the counsel of God to lead, to God and to direct them. He has not left us wondering. Instead, by the word and the Spirit, He leads and directs our paths so that we might walk in humble submission and obedience unto Him, flowing from a heart of love. And then finally, one of the grandest reasons that God's goodness is displayed to those who are pure in heart, Psalm 73, 24 recites, afterward, he receives them into glory. The goodness of God is on display the goodness of God to Israel and all of their covenant promises and ultimately to the fulfillment of those in the light of the church and the goodness of God to those who are clean, those who are pure in heart, those he made pure in heart. The goodness of God is made clear and evident. It's laid out before us. And you would think in the midst of this statement of meditating upon The certainty that God is good to Israel, that God is good to those who are clean in heart, that the psalmist would then go on to praise God for His goodness in the midst of these realities. But that is not what occurs in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, he cites the anchor point and then he begins to break down his own failings in the midst of this understanding. He's certain, hear me saints, he's certain that God is good to Israel. He's certain that God is good to the clean of hearts. And yet he still has some inward turmoil as he looks around at the world around him. And as he sees the the sin multiplying and as he sees the wicked prosper and as he sees the saints suffer in the world, and listen to what he says, a wonderful confession from Asaph. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so what is Asaph's confession? Asaph's confession is that even in light of all of these truths that I cling to, that I know there is still some inward struggle in me. And the simple phrasing is that his feet almost stumbled and his steps had nearly slipped, which means not just that he is beginning to stumble in a simple sense, but it means that to some degree, Asaph is beginning to let go of the binding truth that God is good to Israel and good to those who are pure in heart. Now, perhaps it is that you cannot relate. And if you cannot relate, I am somewhat flabbergasted. Has the truths of scripture never often, or or, has Satan never assailed you? Has the flesh never waged war against you? Has the world never assaulted you to such a degree that as you're holding the truths of scripture, you find yourself to have somewhat frail footing. And I don't want to pretend like this is not a part of the Christian life. It is quite clearly a part of the Christian life. But the beauty is the 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 anchor point of the soul, that binding truth, I am convinced, is often reinforced by our examination of it in the midst of difficulty. As we go through, as our feet begin to slip, we are reminded at particular points by that binding truth that God is good or that the gospel is true or that Christ is sufficient and our feet truly do find sure footing. And so Asaph says, I almost let go of the binding truth that God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But why? Why did he almost let go of this binding truth? He cites two reasons. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. These two things. First, I was envious of the arrogant. If you were to give that a particular category of sin, what would it be? He was covetous. He was covetous. He looked at the arrogant, he looked at the wicked. And as he looked at them, he thought to himself, they have it so good. And as they look out on them, as Asaph examined them, that arrogance, that, that, that envy began to erupt within him. The old man that is still alive, saints, is still alive. in you will often wage war against the truths you know to be true. And in the midst of them, it is quite clear that sin will often give vent. And as sin gives vent, it is no surprise that we in our frail and feeble state will often begin to let go of binding truths. Saints, sin does truly assail the Christian. But we must be reminded before we go any further, for I will not leave you without hope. It will never triumph over them. I make no doubt, there is no question in my soul that sin assails, but there is also no question in my soul that sin will always fail in the assault against the Christian because Christ will not lose any of his people. Christ will keep them. Christ will bring them safely home, even as we have already examined in our understanding of the goodness of God. And so how did he almost let go? He almost let go through envy, through covetousness, but then secondarily, he bought a lie. And hear me, perhaps it is you will push back against this, but he believed that there was prosperity of the wicked, Saints, hear me. There is no prosperity of the wicked. It is but shadows and a mirage. Perhaps it is that they have multiplied wealth upon wealth upon wealth. Perhaps it is that they are in the 1%. Perhaps it is that their children never suffer, that they always have food on their table, and they never want for anything. But hear me, without Christ, they do not prosper. Christ is the anchor point of prosperity. It is is an illusion to say that I have great wealth and simultaneously say, but I do not have Christ. Christ is the anchor of great wealth. He is in and of himself great wealth. And so he looks out on this and he sees their prosperity and he says, I see them prosper. And he even assigns that prosperity to them, a thought that we will see him correct later on in this psalm. And so he believes the lie that those who are wicked, those who multiply trespass are truly prospering. And so how do these lies ultimately assail him? Notice what it says in Psalm 73, 6 through 8, well, really 6 through 11, at the manner of life of these particular wicked men. Listen to how the scriptures define them. Psalm 73, starting in verse 6 through 8. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. Do you hear the amount of sin mentioned in that very brief passage? To give you just a few, you have pride, violence, gluttony, folly, and malice. This is is the manner of life that Asaph is looking at and is seeing in the midst of all of that sin, in the midst of all of that wickedness, he still sees them as prosperous. He still sees them as multiplying wealth. As a matter of fact, if you go a bit further, Psalm 73, 9 through 11, it says this, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? So, not only do they have these blatant rebellions uh, rebellions against God, not only are they committing all types of prideful arrogance before God, they're going out waging violent war, they're gluttonous, they're foolish in all of their ways, and they go forth committing all types of malice. And in the midst of all of this, they blaspheme God, essentially saying, He doesn't see. He doesn't see. This simple profession that God is not going to see, to hold to account, to actually enact justice against those who are prideful, prideful, violent, gluttonous, foolish, and malicious. This is the blasphemy of these wicked men. And in the midst of Asaph seeing this, he's thinking, these men deserve to die. And in reality, Saint, that is a fact. And we should do well to remember that we would all fall into this category apart from the grace of God in Christ. It is true that every single individual who commits these things deserves separation from God. The manner of life that they are continuing to live is not one marked by repentance. It's not one marked by purity of heart. Instead, it is truly marked by a total corruption of heart and a giving over of self to sin and a hatred of God. And you would think to yourself, God will utterly cut them out and leave them in poverty. But Psalm 73 does not record this. It records them as wealthy, free from suffering, and increasing of wealth. Listen to what Psalm 73, 4 through 5 says. For they have no pains until death. I think the rendering of the NASB is better here, which simply says they have no pains in death. Their bodies are fat and sleek They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And can I ask you just for a moment with some transparency? When you see sin abound, when you see men who hate God wage war against Him and yet they prosper, does it not jar you to some degree? And I think that for us to read the Psalms in general, it requires a great deal of transparency in the reader to not pretend that we are better than we are. That when we come to passages like this, there must be some honesty that as we look out on the world and as we see wicked men prosper, as we see men who hate God and actively wage war against him, live prosperously in this world, we must never give it the title of prosperity in the truest sense of the word. We must go with what the scripture ultimately will teach. But nonetheless, you can imagine as Asaph is looking at these things, the disconnect there and the genuineness of the psalm is saying that. These things frustrate me. Even to the point where as we press on, he is assailed by the lie that holiness is ultimately futile. So not only does he look out and see that the wicked are prospering, he also in the midst of this is beginning to believe that holiness living unto God is an exercise ultimately in futility. Listen to what he says in verse 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. And washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Do you see the disconnect here in his own soul? He's looking at the prosperity of the wicked. He's seeing all of their sin and wickedness, and as he's saying, "There's prosperity to be had there." He instantly asks the question: "Am, am "Am I committing an exercise in vanity?" in pursuing holiness of life, in the pursuit of keeping my hands clean. Ultimately, he is being convinced that there is no reward in maintaining a clean heart and clean hands before God. But saints, the scripture corrects us. First Timothy 6.6 tells us, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Further, he lives in the estate, just like we all do, of the chastening hand of God in the midst of our sin. They, Asaph in this story is looking out at those men who commit wicked deeds and there's not an ounce of conviction upon them. They go on. Pride is their necklace. They wear it out in the open without any form of conviction. And yet Asaph in every turn is experiencing conviction from God in regard to his sin, in regard to his trespass and iniquity. And he's becoming convinced that this chastening he receives is unfruitful and ultimately communicates nothing about him or nothing about the God who is chastening. But Revelation again corrects us and says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And so as he's working through this, he's seeing this wickedness, he's seeing even in the midst of his own pursuit of holiness, a point of frustration and difficulty because his feet are beginning to slip from the reality that God is good. And so these lies assail him. And as he works through them, this is what it creates in Asaph. It creates an embittered man who becomes brutish and ignorant like a beast towards God, is what the scriptures say here. Listen to what it says in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. This exchange of truth for a lie that's happening in Asaph's soul essentially has to make either God the fool or Asaph the fool. There is no middle ground here. There must be a confession that God is acting totally inappropriately. He's acting unjustly or the reality is that I'm the fool. And saints, I have news for you. In this narrative, you're always the fool. God is always in the right and you are always in the wrong if you find yourself in contradiction with him. In reality, as Asaph is working through this, even this confession of saying, I was brutish, ignorant, and foolish. When I was pricked of heart, I became embittered. This is what it creates in the heart of Asaph. If even but for a moment, this confession is quite clear and important. And this leads us to ask a rather simple question. In the midst of this downward spiral of Asaph, and we can call it that, however brief the actual event may have been, That downward spiral, what is it that ultimately caught his feet that leads us to the confession that whom have I in heaven but you, and this earth has nothing I desire beside you? It is that profound binding truth that will not let him go. And saints, this is the manner in which we wage war in the world. There are binding truths, there are things that are so certain in the soul of the Christian that can never be let go of and in reality truly do hold us. They keep us upright. They provide for us, for us firm footing. And so how is he caught? He is caught by the original truth of verse 1. Listen to what he says in Psalm 73, 15. He's meditating upon these things. He's thinking of the wickedness. He's thinking of his own questioning of is there reward? Is there reason to pursue holiness? And as he begins to utter the words, this is what he must say. If I had said... I will speak thus. I will speak according to my fallen thoughts. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Essentially saying, I would have been a liar. I would have assailed what I know to be certain that God is good to Israel and to those who are clean of heart. And ultimately, Asaph would have had to blaspheme God in the midst of it. He would have had to say that My ways, Asaph's ways are higher than yours. He would have had to ultimately demean God's position, God's truthfulness, God's essence and being to say such a thing. And there is a wonderful catch in his soul by the work of the Spirit that prevents him from ever uttering a word of this. And saints, if I could make a brief application before we go to the solid ground to which he returns. We do not pretend for a moment that the Christian life does not have its struggles. It has its difficulties. We wage war. We look forward to the future because we know that we live in a strange in-between. And as we live in that strange in-between, hear me, saints, you must bind yourself to truth. And for the Christian, we are not just binding ourselves that God is good to Israel. We are not just binding ourselves to the fact that God is good to the clean in heart. We are binding ourselves to the man Christ Jesus. And as we bind ourselves to the man Christ Jesus, this is a certainty, this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. When my soul is weak and frail, when my legs give way, I have one certain truth. There is a strong, true God, true man who is ever living to mediate for me. When my sins assail me, when I hear the accuser wage war against me, saints, I have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. There is a wonderful binding truth in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is indeed the way the truth and the life. And we hold fast to him. And as we hold fast to him, it is not that we expect to catch ourselves, but we expect him, the living truth of God, to catch us and to uphold us and to refuse to let us go and to bind our mouths when we would speak blasphemous things. No, we wage war and we trust in this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, How does he return to solid ground? He finds himself caught as he's making his way, as he's meditating upon these things. This binding truth latches hold of him. And as it latches hold of him, he begins to seek out ultimately correction. Listen to what it says in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It seemed to me a difficulty. It seemed out of my reach is ultimately what Asaph is getting after. And this is what he says. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned. Hear me, this is what it says. Then I discerned their end. The beauty of this is The correction is in the original question. He's waging war against the thought that the envy of the arrogant, the prosperity of the wicked, as Asaph makes his way to the sanctuary, ultimately the temple of God, he would go there and there would be a great moment of teaching. There would be a reminder of all that is true. And so how is Asaph ultimately taught? He is taught, I am convinced, in two ways. Number one, he is taught by going back to God himself. And as he makes his way back to God himself, it becomes increasingly difficult to view yourself highly and so go on to blaspheme God when you're standing in His presence. The reality is as we enjoy God, as we delight in Him, as we fellowship with Him, there is in in that, in and of itself, a moment of correction, a moment of straightening out, if you will. It's the reason that we see Isaiah not first and foremost confess that the goodness and the holiness of God, but first and foremost confess, woe is me. There's a confession of his frailty. There's a confession of his ignorance and his neediness. And so he goes and he is ultimately taught in the temple. But I'm convinced that not only is he taught in the temple of the, because of the fellowship with God, but I'm convinced he is taught in the temple because of the temple ministry itself. You make your way to the temple, what is it marked by? It's marked by a number of things, but one thing that it would always be marked by is bloodshed if you make your way to the temple, if you made your way to the tabernacle, as you made your way there, there would be without question a reminder of the consequence of sin. Saints, we speak regularly of sacrifice and we speak of it in a salvific sense because we consider Christ and Him crucified and we have laid hold of Him by faith and in that there is truly justification for sin. But we must also understand that that sacrifice not only conveys forgiveness to those who believe, it also displays the just consequence of sinners. When When those lambs are slaughtered, it is conveying not just that there is forgiveness of sins, it is conveying the just penalty of sin. It is conveying the true prosperity, as it were, of the sinner. And the sinner has merited for himself only one thing. And so as he goes in, he is ultimately taught, as he is viewing this ministry, this tabernacle or temple ministry, he is seeing the true consequence, the true end of the wicked. And the end of the wicked is not like the end of the righteous. And this is what he recounts for us. Here's what he believes after he goes and examines these things. As he discerns their end, he says this, Truly, you set them in slippery places. That it's not my feet that are prone to slip into slide, for I have a solid rock underneath them. But the wicked who go on sinning, the wicked who blaspheme God and see their prosperity increase, God has set them on slippery ground. And not only on slippery ground, but slippery ground that will fall to ruin. And so, in the midst of his meditation, he's seeing these things and he's instantly being corrected almost a total 180 of believing that he is the one who is slipping and falling in the midst of these things, and instead being shown that it is the wicked who are prone to slipping and ultimately falling into utter ruin. And then going forward, it says this how they are destroyed in a moment, says Psalm 19, swept away utterly by terrors. What is the terror that he is mentioning? I think we're thinking about this from time to time as if there's going to be some moment in the life of the wicked, in the earthly life of the wicked, where some terrible thing might occur to them. That is not ultimately what's being expressed. The terror is God. The terror is that God is waging war against them. The terror is that God has placed them on a slippery slope. Friends, you might look around and think the wicked are prospering. Hear me, there is a corrective thought. God has placed them on a slippery slope that will end in utter ruin. And He is just, perfectly just. Do not think for a moment as you see wicked men prosper that God has passed justice on them. God has passed justice on them. And it will come ultimately to fruition on the last day. So he says, truly you set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Listen to this, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms, as an image of nothingness. That is a vast distinction from the entry of our soul. The corrective thought, the binding truth that God is good to Israel is not to be questioned. As a matter of fact, it is the faulty assumption and the buying of lies in Asaph that must be examined. So it is with us saints. We do not question the binding truth. We question that which would contest it. And as that which is contesting it is ultimately brought into the full light of Scripture, it is always, hear me saints, always found wanting. So their true end is that they shall be destroyed, they shall be swept away in terror. And in the midst of this, there is a great conviction in the soul of Asaph. And we know this really from the phrase that we read in verse 21 and 22. He understands the estate in which uttered those phrases, I nearly slept, sw- uh, slipped When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. What a wonderful confession of his own frailty. And not only a confession of his frailty, in the midst of this conviction of his sin, the conviction of his covetousness and his believing of lies, there is immediately another confession. A sweet and wonderful, beautiful confession that he makes as he's considering this. The very first, or as he's leading into the beauty, essentially the, 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 the rising action of this psalm, if you will, he recounts his own frailty. And then uses this beautiful phrase, nevertheless. Let's read 21, 22, and 23 together. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Asaph, in the middle of his questioning of God's goodness and justice, he comes confessing and understands that even in the midst of his questioning, even in the midst of his his frustrations as he's looking around at the world, is saying with great confidence, you're holding my right hand. You're keeping me even in the midst of my fallenness, even in the midst of my frailty. You are still with me. And this is a wonderful reminder, saints, that should you be in the Lord Jesus Christ, should you be in the favor of God, it is not as though He abandoned you in the midst of you questioning. As a matter of fact, there is a wonderful truth that He brings to light in the midst of it. It is an incredible kindness of our God that He does not grow frustrated with our questions. Instead, He utilizes them to train us all the more in our knowledge of God. And so what is he ultimately reminded of? What is Asaph reminded of first? He is reminded that material wealth is not primarily a measurement of God's goodness toward an individual. We must never take these things as primary. These are always secondary, tertiary, or even further down the road. The reality is the goodness of God expressed toward a people is demonstrated in this way, in particularly Psalm 73, 23, and 24 first is that God dwells with his people, meaning that his face continually shines upon those whom he loves. Psalm 73, 23 again, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. This is true goodness. This is true prosperity, saints. True prosperity is that in the Through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the good smile of God always rests upon you. And you give me that and nothing else, and I am the richest of men. Further, Amazingly, there's more. Not only in the midst of that great truth does He reclaim and rejoice in that, his face, that God's face shines upon Him, dwells with Him, but God continues to guide Him with His counsel. Psalm 73, 24. Again, making clear, you guide me with your counsel. You make clear to me the paths of life. Even if we're to consider the whole thrust of the Scriptures up until this point, it is even there guiding Him unto the Lord Jesus Christ through mystery And even then, there is this concept that he is continuing to guide, to lead, direct, to make known the paths of life. And then finally, the true expression, the grand expression of God's goodness to his people is that afterwards, after he guides with counsel, he brings safely home. It is almost as if this is the laying hold of all the prosperity of all the world's. When you are brought safely home, when you have been brought into the kingdom of God, not just here below, but through, but brought into it in the eternal sense that we have died and we have been raised with Christ, been brought into Him, been dwelling with Him eternally in that wonderful world of love, the goodness of God is displayed and true prosperity is made clearly known. And this leads us to Asaph's new confession. This new confession that I imagine most of us have memorized in some capacity, or perhaps we can paraphrase it regularly, but it is a point of great confidence for the Christian. But we must not miss the fact that this point of confidence came, certainly from a point of frailty of man. So the first thing that Asaph does is he assesses prosperity, and we must do the same. Listen to what he says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth. I desire besides you. Let's start with the earth and make our way to heaven. The earth has nothing I desire besides you. What did this psalm begin with? Was it not the covetous heart of Asaph? And in the midst of all of this meditation on the goodness of God, the covetous heart, which I would remind you that the first thing that covetousness does is make you hate what you have. And, and that covetous heart is altogether shifted to where he views the world around him as rubbish. The same way that we see the Apostle Paul writes, all of these things are rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Saints, the reality is that there is something to be desired here below. The something to be desired here below is God Himself. We must not misunderstand. We must not live our lives as though we are waiting to enter heaven to receive the, the wonderful gift of God's presence. Saints, the reality is that the desire of the human heart here below, here and now, is that we might enjoy and delight in Christ in every way that He has made possible here and now. Because what we cannot read this to say is there is nothing on earth that I desire. That is not at all what it says. It is saying that there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. It is true that the... the The focus of the Christian heart must always be toward a deeper knowledge and joy and delight in Christ himself. Saints, there should be a desire within you, a singular, wonderful desire to know more of Christ and to delight in him all the more here below. And hear me, the reality is that we are often swayed by lesser pleasures and lesser joys. I would encourage you, burn them. They are secondary and they will burn on the last day anyway. You do well to aim your affections to that which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is so easy to be swept away. And that is ultimately what we see happen in Asaph's life. He's looking around and he's seeing all this prosperity, forgetting that it's not true prosperity and misunderstanding where true prosperity lies ultimately in desiring God himself. This earth has nothing I desire besides you saints. This means not only the things that are wicked and sinful, but hear me, this means even the good things that this world would convey to you. That means that as you desire and hear me, this is good and right that in your desire for your family, it must be a desire first and foremost for Christ. and your desire to, to be a faithful laborer, it must be first and foremost, a means of faithfully laboring unto a deeper desire of Christ. He fills all of these realms up to the brim. We must not exempt him from one that any activity of the human heart here below must be a pursuit of Christ. He is our chief desire and everything that we do is an aim to be obedient unto him because we love him. So this earth has nothing I desire besides you. He is the central theme of the Christian life. And lastly, heaven is made to be heaven only because God is there. I love this question. Whom have I in heaven but you? When we consider this, our meditations upon the future life of heaven must be meditations upon the one to whom we will live in that wonderful world of love. It must not be, and hear me, it must not be life eternal in the sense that we will go on living forever. It must not be that we have beloved friends and family there. It must not be that there will be no sickness, nor suffering, nor pain there. Those are wondrous blessings. But they are not the essence of heaven, saint. The essence of heaven is that God is there. And not only is God there, God is there in a glorious and even further exposited way that we in our feeble and frail capacities here cannot comprehend as of yet. I'm reminded of Ephesians 2 where it tells us that the reason that God gives us eternity in heaven is that He might be able to express the immeasurable riches of His kindness. Saints, we go not for the kindness. We go for the God who gives the kindness. And He has graciously given us eternity so that we might enjoy Him not enjoy just the blessings that flow from him, but he himself, that we can cherish, delight in him, rejoice in him in ways that we even cannot hear below because we still have that old man alive in us. We look forward to the day will sin will no longer mar my fellowship. We look forward to the day when there will not be wicked thoughts that arise within me. We look forward to the day when my fellowship, when our fellowship with God is free from any taint because he has made us perfect like his son. And as we see him, we will be like him, for we have seen him as he is. This is prosperity, Saint. Prosperity is, I have the God of the Scriptures. Prosperity is, I have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. I am no longer an alien or a stranger. I am a beloved son who he sits at his table. So not only do we see an assessment of prosperity, we also see an assessment of mortality and spiritual neediness. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My heart and my flesh may fail. There is a wonderful demonstration of spiritual frailty even in this psalm. Asaph begins it confessing covetousness, confessing believing of lies. He demonstrates how desperately and how, perhaps better yet, how easily the heart truly can fail within us. And he essentially, in the midst of this, is confessing a a spiritual need. He's confessing that there needs to be some external strength in which I can gird myself up under. But he is not only considering the spiritual. I am convinced in the light of some of the phrasing that he uses, he is also considering the physical frailty of our forms here below. It is quite demonstrated by our own human frame that we do give way, that we ultimately will draw our last breath. And as he considers these things, he's saying, my heart, my inner man may fail, my flesh will fail. And there's an assessment, an understanding of this, a gravity that's laid upon him by this profession. And then he goes on to say, uniquely forgetting the flesh and paying close attention to the heart, he says, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That word there, strength, is better translated rock. You are the rock of my heart. Meaning that when I rest, I rest upon the rock of Christ. I rest upon God who is my rock, God who is my strength, God who I can lean on and rely on and depend on that will ultimately strengthen me that I may live faithfully here below. God is the strength of The heart. He is the one who enables us to continue to live the Christian life, even in the midst of our failings, even in the midst of our frailty. He is the one who strengthens and undergirds us as we walk here below. So he assesses I'm frail, I'm feeble, I'm needy. There's God alone who is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's the one who makes me able to live, makes me able to walk. We imagine even that. Clear text in Philippians that we continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works and wills within you for his good pleasure. The reason that you're ever faithfully laboring is because God is undergirding you as the rock of your heart. And then he says this, the crescendo of the psalm, he is my portion forever. A couple of things I want to identify from this and then I'll close. The portion is God himself yet again. It is not secondary things. It is not wealth. It is not sin. It is not, it is not the prosperity that he had in view when he began writing this psalm. Instead, he understands that the portion, the inheritance, the reward, the treasure of the soul is God himself. And then secondly, this portion is a portion forever. Meaning today, Asaph in the midst of concluding this is laying hold of his inheritance and saying, I have all the wealth of the world right here, that God himself is my portion. It is a portion for today. It is a portion for tomorrow. It is a portion throughout all eternity. And it is a portion that cannot be emptied or stolen or destroyed. 1 Peter tells us that God keeps this wonderful inheritance for us in heaven. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, guarded through faith. Saints, we have a wonderful portion and a wonderful inheritance. And that inheritance is God himself. And as we lay hold of these truths, we have an even firmer footing based upon our original binding truth. It is not just that He is good to Israel. It is not just that He is good to those who are clean in heart. It is that He gives Himself to those people. He gives Himself. He gives prosperity in the truest and grandest sense. He gives Himself to those. And then ultimately, if I were to conclude in any way, we must say, we must contrast this wealth. I imagine that by the end of this psalm, Asaph's covetousness heart had looked back on that which he coveted and thought, trash, trash. That the things that I longed for were contrary to God, especially in the midst of Asaph having already received the the, the God who is his portion. And saints, I would plead with you, in the midst of looking out at the world around you, And considering the wealth of the nations, do not forget that true wealth is in Christ himself. Do not forget that in reality, you have the greatest and grandest of portions that God has offered you himself, given you freely himself, and in reality even made you fit to receive him. Because apart from Christ's finished work, you wouldn't have the ability to receive him without instantly being burned alive. And God has made you able And saints, I would plead with you if I could finalize this. The recitation of the truth that we find in verse 27 and 28 is unique. Listen to what he says. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And listen to this. But for me, same phrasing that we find in verse 2. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. Saints, When you cling to that which is true, it gives us a wonderful sure footing when we feel the assault of the world, the flesh, and the devil upon us. Our binding truth, first and foremost, is not just that God is good. It is that God is good in the face of Jesus Christ. And He has brought us near that we might enjoy Him forever. Saints, we do not question the binding truths. We submit everything to the authority of Scripture and see all that can test it, die in the light of wonderful of the wonderful truths of the gospel let's pray together